I think it's time you become the asset. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 16 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Let me start off with a reminder that today and tomorrow are the final two days of a week-long giveaway of all four books in A Perfect Hatred. Yep, all four, free. It was my birthday a few days ago, and I decided to give presents instead of get them. Well, I I did get some presents. I mean, it's not a birthday unless you get presents, but I'm giving away books. And what better gift is that? Oh, and did you know that my character, Alexei Bukharin, and I share a birthday. Well, he's a bit older than me, but when I develop a character, I use a character development sheet that I downloaded from somewhere or got at some workshop that I went to several years ago. And this is a very long character development sheet. It's before you fill it out, it's like 15 pages long, full of questions on just about everything a char- you would need to know about a character, their likes, their dislikes, what they like to eat, how they sleep, left-handed, right-handed, musically inclined, not. And I found that particularly useful, particularly in writing the villain or the antagonist, which we sometimes have a tendency to make too one-dimensional. And it was it was really good for that, but it also was really good for my two protagonists, Alexei and Mai. And so when it came, the line came that said, you know, when's your character's birthday? And I was like, well, I'll just make it mine. But again, he's a bit older than me. Let's just leave it at that. And then I almost made Mai's birthday Valentine's Day, but I thought that was too much of a cliche, so I made it February the 15th instead. If you're a writer struggling with developing characters, particularly your bad guys, Google character sheets or character development tool or something similar and take the time to fill it out thoroughly. Now, you may never use 90 to 95% of what you put in there, but what it does is makes you think about your character as a fully realized human being. And that makes your characters more real, not only to you, but to your reader as well. Okay, that's mini writing lesson number one for today. Let's get into reading from the conclusion of A Perfect Hatred, book four, Collateral Damage. Because this series is a serial, that is, none of the books stand alone, 
each follows the other and you have to know what went on in the previous books to understand what happens in the final book. You really should read them in sequence, though. I noticed yesterday, which was the first day, excuse me, not yesterday, Monday. <laughs> I'm recording this on Tuesday, but it's going to be broadcast on Thursday, so I screwed up. I noticed on Monday when I was checking to see how many copies had been downloaded, you would think that there would be equal copies of all four books if people were going to take advantage of having all four for free. But there, there wasn't. More of book four was downloaded than book one, book two, or book three. So maybe those were people who had already read the first three books and decided only to get the, the fourth one. But it's very interesting. Anyway, I had to include in books two, three, and four kind of a summary scene to let people know who might pick one out of sequence what happened. And if you watched the old serial TV shows back in the 50s and 60s, you'll remember that at the beginning of the next episode, it was something like, and we last left our heroes and... There was a, a fill-in of what had happened. And that even happens now with... I was re-watching season one, which is not really season one. It's the first season of the revitalized Doctor Who with Christopher Eccleston. I was watching that last week, and they gave a pretty significant summary clip of the previous episode before the, the current one. So that's what I tried to do, and it's kind of hard by the time you get to the fourth book, because you've got three other books to summarize, and it can't be like a data dump, and you can't give away too much that people will think, well, I don't need to go buy the other three books, because she told me everything that was going to happen right here. So it's got to be a hook that gets you to read the rest of the book. So the setup for book four, at the end of Book three, Mai had attempted to get John Carroll to break with the prophet of Patriot City, Elijah, by letting Elijah beat her senseless. She thought Carroll cared for her so much that seeing what Elijah did to her, that he would abandon his association with Elijah. But Carol believes too deeply in what he thinks is his destiny, and so he leaves her in a hotel room in Arizona. She calls Alexei. They go home, where she spends a few nights in the hospital because she's been beaten pretty badly, and that's when Alexei goes to visit his mother in Ukraine, and he and my part with a really unclear status about what comes next in their relationship. So, here we go. Collateral Damage, Prologue, A Choice Made Unknown Location, January 1995 John Carroll took advantage of the fact Prophet went to the men's room with a newspaper and headed for the diner's payphone. Carol closed the phone booth's door, 
called a number from memory and punched in his calling card code. After two rings, the answering machine picked up. His shoulders slumped in disappointment. You've reached Irish Charities. No one can take your call. Please leave a message. Siobhan's voice. He closed his eyes and relished it. The tone sounded, and he talked fast. Siobhan, I've only got a few minutes. I, I need to know you're okay. I know you said you left Boston, but I hope you're back there and, and fix things. Are you there? Pick up, please, Siobhan. He controlled his urge to pound on the phone. Siobhan, I, I did come to the motel when I got back to Kingman. The, the manager didn't know when you left. God, I was so scared. I shouldn't have left you. I, I don't know what was going on. I don't know what I was thinking. No, he told himself. You knew exactly what you were thinking about a destiny that now seemed unsure. He checked to make certain profit hadn't returned. Look, Siobhan, I talked to, uh, you know who, about what happened. He and I fought, Siobhan, I mean like a fist fight over what he did to you. I told him it was wrong and we fought. God damn it, Siobhan, pick up the phone. He mentally kicked himself for shouting, thankful the ambient noise in the busy diner covered his loss of control. Siobhan, God, I I'm sorry. I'm sorry about all of it. What he did to you. I've got, I've got something to do, something big. The personal has to wait. I, I can't see you for a while, but not forever, please. Not that. Things could get hot around me, and I don't want you burned. A movement caught his eye. A frowning prophet strode toward the phone booth. Carol pressed the receiver to his chest and cracked the door. Who are you talking to? My sister. If I don't check in with my family, they'll call the police or something. Prophet squinted at him, but the lie must have convinced him. Hurry up. We need to keep moving. Carol nodded and closed the door. Prophet stared hard before he headed for the diner's exit. How had Carol come to this point in his life? Constantly traveling, staying in cheap motels, separated from people who mattered to him? the government, the stinking government. In a few months, they would try to say he'd done it because of Killeen, because the FBI botched a raid on a religious cult and killed a bunch of men, women, and children. That was the simple approach, the easy answer. But it was more than that. No, it was the government screwing over farmers, foreclosing on their lands when they couldn't repay government loans, it was the government going after guns. It was all the government rules and regulations keeping people from protecting themselves because the government wanted them dependent on it. It was the government trying to make him into an assassin, trying to make him pay back money it gave him by mistake. And fuck yes, it was killing. But it was also cumulative. All the injustices piled up, heaped on him, on people like him, and it was his job to bring it down, clear away the rubble, and make room for the new.
action was what he'd wanted all along. From the moment he'd watched Calvary Locusts burn on television. Right as he'd become convinced that all that would happen after Killeen was a long string of useless words, he met the man who focused him and urged him and had given him this mission. Carol paused, realizing he'd said all that out loud into Siobhan's answering machine. No, that was all right. She needed to hear and understand. Siobhan, I need you to be careful, he continued. I think they know I told you. They're after me, but I'll never, ever give you up to them. You know that. But you need to be really, really careful. I know you can take care of yourself, but be careful, okay? The hit of meth he'd taken right before this midnight breakfast hit him full force, and words rushed from him. Siobhan, I was so worried about you, about seeing you hurt. That hurt me more than you know, but I'm sorry. You have to understand. I have to put the personal aside. I have to focus on being a warrior. The time for talk is past, and after everything cools down, I can see you again. I need to see you again. I need you. Please, please, please don't go all the way home. I have no way of knowing where you are. His throat tightened and tears threatened to unman him. Siobhan, please don't think you don't mean anything to me because you do. You understand me. The only one who does. Okay, I made a choice you don't like. But it'll work out and I'll be fine. We'll be fine. I swear. I promise. The meth narrowed his vision, making it seem as if the patrons of the diner were watching him. Panic rose up. I, I, I need to hang up in case you're bugged. Siobhan, please be safe and please remember to destroy my letters to you. It's more important than ever. Siobhan, I... Goodbye, Siobhan. I... I love you. He slammed the receiver down and rested his forehead on the cool glass door of the booth. A sob built, but he fought it down. As he walked from the diner, he didn't notice the people who recoiled from his dead glare. Chapter One Homecoming International Arrivals Dulles International Airport, January 1995. A commercial flight turned out to be the better option for Alexei's and Natalia's trip to Ukraine. For their return from Kiev, they'd changed planes in Frankfurt and boarded a nonstop to Dulles. Mai and Olga awaited them as U.S. Customs cleared several overseas arrivals. I did an excellent job with makeup. Olga said, no one is noticing. Rather the way I prefer it, Mai replied. She'd spent three days and nights in hospital for observation. Before Alexei and Natalia departed, the facial bruising had not faded enough to avoid an excuse for Natalia. Mai and Alexei had kept track of past excuses, 
muggings, car accidents, falls while jogging. Natalia must think she had the most accident-prone grandparents on earth. The excuse this time was a bad case of the flu. However, the extra days of healing while Alexei and Natalia were in Ukraine meant the fading bruises could be hidden behind makeup. The cracked ribs, however, still reminded Mai they were cracked. Mai watched the reunions occurring around her, the couples embracing and kissing, parents greeting children. She looked away. Ah, I see Malishka, Olga said. Mai hid a smile. Olga had been close to bereft without her charge, and Mai found it comforting Olga cared for Natalia, rather than thinking of her merely as a job. Mums! Natalia squealed and ran headlong for her. Natalia kissed both of Mai's cheeks and hugged Mai fiercely. Mai's ribs protested, but she pursed her lips and didn't acknowledge the pain. Natalia dashed to Olga and repeated the hugging and kissing, the former KGB colonel stiff in the teenager's arms. Where's Poppy? Mai asked. Oh, he should be here soon. He was right behind me. Poppy grew a beard. It's gross. Olga, Mai said, take Natalia to baggage claim. Alexei and I will be there shortly. The two headed away, Natalia chattering a mile a minute. Alexei emerged from customs, his passport and a carry-on in hand. His eyes swept the area. He always did that, looking for danger. His shorn hair had grown back enough he could wear it combed off his face. It had grown back gray, which he'd been before, but now a shade or two darker, the color of steel. He wore a long black cashmere coat, black dress trousers, and a black turtleneck sweater. The beard, a shade or so lighter than his hair, wasn't gross. It was attractive, compelling. A whole new Alexei. Maybe that was what they needed. He was a handsome man. That had quite often been the issue. He'd used those looks to his advantage, even on her, Yet when she saw him now, something she'd buried months ago stirred in her. He'd been gone three weeks. It felt longer. When he saw her, his narrowed eyes relaxed, and he smiled. When he reached her, though, he hesitated before he lay one hand on her shoulder and gave her a light kiss on each cheek. Olga did your makeup, I see he said, lips still in an uptick. According to her, she did an excellent job. If I didn't know about them, I wouldn't notice the bruises. That was a subject she didn't want to discuss. How is your mother? According to my sister, the doctor, she could die tomorrow if she wants, or she could go on several more years if she wants. Her mind is still sharp, though she dozes a great deal. She was thrilled to see Natalia. She sends her regards. Mai nodded to acknowledge that. Where are Natalia and Olga? I sent them to baggage claim. Oh. What, she thought, was he nervous to be alone with her? We might as well head there, Mai said. I like the beard. Oh? 
I was going to shave it when I got home, mostly to silence Natalia's carping about it. Leave it for a while. That garnered a slight frown, but he fell into step beside her, close but not touching. Any report from the operatives we sent to watch Carol? he murmured. My side now was as good a time as any. It turns out Carol didn't show up in Enid, Oklahoma, nor has he returned to Arizona. Duval never left. No sightings of him at all? No. One team is staying in Arizona, watching the Duval residence. The other moved on to New York to the father's house. And don't lecture. I know it means he lied to me. They walked in silence until reaching the baggage claim area. Um, number six, Alexei said. Physically, how do you feel? Well, no more pissing blood. Ribs are better, at least until Natalia hugged me. She missed you. The hand came to rest on her shoulder again. I missed you. Had she missed him? She'd hated being alone in the house for all intents and purposes. Olga had stayed in her apartment, emerging to fix meals for Mai, which she left for her but didn't eat with her. Mai believed Alexei and Natalia were the only two fellow human beings Olga tolerated. It's good you're home, Mai said not looking at him. His hand left her shoulder. Mount Vernon, Virginia. Sleep eluded Mai. During a mission, after a mission, she could sleep like a baby. Alexei was the one plagued with occasional insomnia, prone to walking the house or sitting alone in dark rooms. Right now, he slept like the proverbial dead. Was it irrational to think he slept better than she did on purpose, rather than because of jet lag? Mai turned to her side, still a painful process, and stared at the LED numbers on the clock, hoping the steady flash of the seconds would lull her back to sleep. Beside the clock on the night table, her pager's message light blinked. Mai covered it with her hand, glancing over her shoulder, to see if Alexei had seen it. Grinding her teeth against the pain, she got out of bed and went downstairs to the office for privacy. Mai read the message and groaned. Edwin Terrell wanted to meet her at two in the morning. No callback number, only a two-word message telling her where. She dressed from the stash of clothes in the office closet no time for makeup to cover the worst of the lingering bruises. Darkness would have to hide them. Halfway to the garage, she stopped, went back, and left a note for Alexei. Alexei lay on his back and listened to the faint noises from downstairs. The pager had awakened him, and he was annoyed, knowing who'd page her in the middle of the night. He could make it an issue, but he couldn't throw stones at that glass house, still. The garage door opened and closed, and Alexei crossed to the front of the house to watch Mai's forerunner, lights off, go down the driveway. He headed downstairs to the office. On his desk, in the circle of light from his lamp, lay her note. Snake has some information for me. Back soon.
MF. Alexei crumpled the note, uncertain what angered him more, her meeting with Terrell or her signing the note with both initials, as if he wouldn't know who M was. He turned the pager on and read its message. With no inner debate, he dressed and went downstairs to Olga's apartment. When she opened the door after his knock, she said, Sto, netak. Nothing is wrong. Ma is meeting Terrell. I'm following her. I'll be back before Natalia wakes. Alyosha, my ear would not, wouldn't she? He left Olga standing in the doorway. Okay, time for a break here. When you read A Perfect Hatred, please don't skip the afterword I wrote and included in book four, Collateral Damage. I did that. You don't normally put an afterword in a piece of fiction, but this is so heavily based on an historical event. I wanted to take the time and the space to explain my motivation for writing the series. Frankly, the subject matter was tough. The research sometimes sickened me because I was reading about such outlandish beliefs and perceptions that you could only think people couldn't possibly believe in them. But they did, and they still do. We had that shoved in our faces on January 6, 2021. And it's the same old ideas. Nothing has changed, unfortunately. We still have people in this country who do not understand how a democratic republic works. What I can't quite put my finger on is why Autocracy appeals to people who think we're currently in a tyranny. I guess because my father was a veteran of World War II, I grew up hearing from him how bad dictators were, how bad autocracies were. And my generation, again, who had a father or a grandfather in World War to probably have that same feeling. But then again, you know, when you look at the demographics, that may, may not be the case. So all that tells me is that we have not learned our lessons from history. The government that we have with the constitution that we have is, its sole purpose is to help and protect its citizens. But there are people who want to be free of that, I think because they don't understand what it means. They want to go the easy way and follow someone who's like, I'll fix everything. Don't worry. You don't have to worry about anything. I'm going to keep you free and you're going to be able to live your life and you're going to be prosperous and so forth. But the, in reality, a person like that is only thinking about himself. It's only what you can do for him, not what he can do for you. And, and that's essentially a dictatorship and autocracy. Even though they complain about, oh, it's tyrannical to make me wear a mask, what they want to turn to is something beyond tyranny. In the kind of autocracy they're flirting with or they think is so wonderful, if 
the supreme leader decided he wanted you to wear a mask, by God, you'd wear it. Or, you know, that's why they had a Gestapo. If you didn't wear, if you as a Jew didn't wear that damned yellow star, then you could be shot in the street. That simple. I mean, that Perhaps I, I over-exaggerate, but that is the example of tyranny and autocracy that I grew up hearing about, and that obviously made an impression on me. I saw this meme on Facebook or Instagram or somewhere on social media recently that said something to the effect of, January 6th is the result of 40 years of having the football coach teach civics. Now, I don't know whether I exactly agree with that because I've known a, a lot of very smart coaches who could probably teach civics. But fundamentally, people don't know how the three branches of government work. I mean, we've got elected representatives in Congress right now who don't understand the legislative branch, the judicial branch, and the executive branch. They don't understand that at all. And I don't know, maybe they had a bad football coach for their civics teacher. The fact of the matter is that the Constitution, American government, isn't covered in depth anymore. When I was in high school, you had to take two whole years of U.S. government, U.S. government one and U.S. government two. And then I went on, because I found it fascinating, to get one of my degrees in political science. And I eventually went to work for the U.S. government, so I really got to see how it worked. Now, my mom and dad did not raise an idiot. I wouldn't have given 30-plus years of my life for something or to something that was bad or evil. I just wasn't brought up that way. Now, does our government work like it's supposed to 100% of the time? No. But that would, be, that would be impossible because human beings who comprise the government workforce are fallible. But the vast majority of us are dedicated to the oath we took to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic. I can still remember the day I took that oath. If any of you have been in the military, you remember the day you took your oath. And it still chokes me up because the day I took that oath, I knew that that was very similar to the same oath my dad took back in 1940-something when he joined the Army. And it was meaningful to me. And, and he did his best to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution from foreign enemies and I just felt it was my duty to do the same. Now, maybe that's naive. I'm sure there's some people who would say, oh, well, that's so naive. She has no idea what she's talking about. Well, yeah, I do. Actually, I do. And that's why it was so troubling to see federal employees and active duty military and former military among the insurrectionists this past January. To me, when you take that oath, it's binding and you're not released from it when you leave the government. Okay, enough, <laughs> enough preaching, okay?
Remember again, today and tomorrow are the final two days of the A Perfect Hatred giveaway. So go to amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan to find the free books, all four of them. I'm going to wrap up this revisit for A Perfect Hatred by rereading the final chapter of the final book, Collateral Damage. Now, the one criticism I received from a reader when Collateral Damage came out, and kind of about the series in general, he said, although the person told me he liked it very much, was that he thought I was too easy on the character based on Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, that I made him too sympathetic. Well, the character in my books is fictional. Yes, he's based on a real person. Some parts of his biography are based on McVeigh's life. But that constitutes about 30 to 40% of the fictional character. The rest, the majority of his makeup, of what he says, what he does, how he interacts with, with Mai, how she interacts with him, is complete fiction. But obviously, I did something right because it evoked an emotion in the reader that he felt he had to share with me. And I did appreciate that. And I look back on it and I understand how he could feel that way. But this was my world that I invented. And I made him think. And sometimes as a writer, that's the best praise that you can get. But have a listen to this final chapter, the epilogue, and see what you think. Epilogue Invictus June 11th, 2001 Terre Haute, Indiana Will I dream? Where have I heard that before? My Fisher asked. Come on, John Carroll said. You know that. It's from a movie. Oh, yes, I have so much time to go to so many of those. To have something other than the obvious to discuss. He would tell her the upcoming movies on the few channels the prison allowed the inmates to view. He'd pick one and watch from his cell while she watched at home. At her next visit, they'd discuss it. We watched it in the past two months, he said. I'm thinking, yeah, not a lot of time to spare. It was 2010. Ah, oh, yes, at the end, when Dr. Chandra convinces the HAL 9000 to perform the burn to send the spaceship back to Earth. Right, the others think HAL will repeat his mad computer thing. Chandra trusts him and tells him the truth. HAL accepts his fate and asks if he'll dream. So will I. I don't know. Can you find out? The 15 cc's of sodium tripentothal, 2% solution, delivered over 10 seconds would render him unconscious almost immediately. In that chemically induced sleep, what dreams may come. One minute after the sodium tripentothal, 
15 cc's of pancuronium bromide, also administered over 10 seconds, would collapse his diaphragm and lungs. 15 cc's of potassium chloride would stop his heart. The last of his oxygenated blood wouldn't reach his brain. Two minutes after that, the procedure would be declared complete, but the brain might have enough oxygen to function for four to six more minutes. With no heart to keep beating, no lungs to inflate, it might be longer. He would be unconscious, though. I doubt anyone has researched that, Mai said. The pool of subjects is small. I remember this from high school world history, okay? During the French Revolution, when all the royals got guillotined, sometimes their mouths would move after the head came off. That was more an autonomic reflex. Well, what happens if they put me to sleep and I start dreaming and it's, you know, a sex dream? The sedatives will relax all of you. His smile was affectionate. I never could get a rise out of you. The smile faded, replaced by detachment. How long before you leave? Clock's over there, Ma replied. I know. The clock tells a harsh truth, like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You'll say a quarter hour. So how long? Mai heard the soft ticks as the sweep hand touched on each second. How did it feel to know what remained of your life was a finite number of seconds? She wanted her death to be a swift surprise, no time to think, no time to prepare. She certainly didn't want to sit in a windowless room and wait for it. Tick, tick, tick. Seconds off a life. How many left? She looked at the clock and did the rough math. Fewer than 8,000 seconds. A headache began at her temples, and she pressed the fingers of one hand there. You okay? Carol asked. What a stupid fucking question, she thought. I'm sitting across from a man who'll walk into a room, lie down on a bed, and remain calm while someone pumps poison into his bloodstream. I'm fine, she said. Death is always harder on those left behind. Now you think of that. Sometimes life is harder. Yeah, but I'll have it a lot easier soon. The quiet sounds, his unwavering acceptance unnerved her. The ticking clock, his calm breathing, her rapid pulse, the sounds of death in waiting. Mai caught the guards looking into the room through the small observation window. Their faces were serene, their eyes alert. One raised an eyebrow, asking if anything were wrong. She shook her head. They were the same guards who'd escort John Thomas Carroll to the execution suite. Suite. That made it sound like accommodations at the Ritz. The politically incorrect term, death chamber, was more apt. No, the killing room. Yes, that's what it was. The guards should be glad they weren't coming for her. She'd kick, 
scream, clench her muscles so they couldn't get the needles in. They'd have to chain her down to kill her. That, she supposed, was why they sedated people before killing them. Siobhan, Carol said, forceful. She realized he'd called her name, the name he knew her by, several times. Don't ask me again if I'm all right, she said. His eyes went steely. Good, she thought. Get pissed. Get raging mad. Don't go quietly into death. All the boyishness she'd known had left his face, removed by six years in prison. Before, he'd had the sheen of outdoors on his skin, a light tan, a smattering of freckles. The years spent indoors had left him gray and pasty, except for the brilliant blue of his eyes. He'd fasted off and on for the past few weeks, and his cheekbones were chiseled. He hadn't shaved for several days, and when he'd had his last haircut two weeks before, he'd had the prison barber shave his head. The stubble on his face blended with the stubble on his head, and the dark circles beneath his eyes, because he'd also forsworn sleep, made him look old and tired. As a child, she'd seen pictures of liberated concentration camps. As an adult, she'd found Serb prison camps and seen the same hollow eyes, parchment-like skin, and dismal acceptance of one's fate. Sorry, he said. I'm concerned. Don't be. I'm fine. In his smile, she saw the spark of the man he'd been, and his acceptance he was a walking corpse. If he could accept that, she should. So, back to the dreaming thing, Carol said. When the pentothal hits, I'll remember that night in the bar when we danced. Some religious fanatic once said dancing was sex standing up, an apt description of that night. She smiled back at him. Then, pentothal or no, you'll die with a hard on. Reality is an elusive thing, she thought. Jokes and sarcasm can put it away until the casual use of a word smacks you in the face. All the defiance, anger, and facades fell away. Before her was a man who knew he was about to die. I wanted to feel you that way, he said. I know. For a scant moment. She had, too. I still imagine what it would feel like to be inside you. Mai couldn't respond. Her own mask would slip and sanity would fall with it. She looked at him, hated by people who didn't know him and some who did, hated because of the single bad thing he'd done. It would have been the best you ever had, she said. No doubt. As if embarrassed by the admission, he looked away. Okay, he said, sighing. I'm going to pray the rosary, and I'd like you to say it with me. Then it'll be time for you to go. When you do, tell that priest I'd like to see him. He'd heard the unrelenting second hand as well. He bowed his head and clasped her hands in his. 
His fingers trembled, and she shifted her hands to still them. He wouldn't want anyone to see a hint of weakness. No rosaries to finger, only each other's hands and the imprint of catechism class. Ancient words of entreaty bound them in transcendence, the point of prayer after all. She prayed intently, though she knew no one heard her. He blessed himself when he finished and fell silent, his breathing now frenetic as if he'd been running. She didn't look at him. He wouldn't want her to see his fear. His hands were like ice, and she rubbed them. When I leave, move around a little, Mai said, to get your blood flowing. You wouldn't want anyone to mistake shivering from the cold for anything else. He nodded, his fingers flexing against hers. She needed to leave, but she didn't know how to extract her hands without revealing to him this was the last time. You know what I want done after, right? Yes, I'll take care of it. That envelope by the door, take that when you go. It's for my dad. I was a jerk to him and Marianne at their last visit. Tell them... It didn't mean I didn't love them, but I couldn't hug them knowing, you know, it was the last time. I'll take it to your father personally. She looked at the door. The guards' faces had gone from serene to serious. She nodded to them again. I'll be where you can see me, she told him. He looked at her. They said I could, that you could be closer before you left. Rare had been the opportunities to grant a dying man's wish. His fingers gripped hers in desperation. She kissed his forehead, letting her lips linger as long as possible. True to his mission to the end, he murmured to her, things for her ears only, things she'd wanted to know before when he'd stood fast. She thanked him. He released her hands, his fingers gliding along her skin. He looked into her eyes, his expression telling her something. I know, she said. His visage altered, hardened, became the monster face everyone expected, everyone needed to see. And she left him. A guard escorted by to the observation room, where Carol's lawyers waited. In the other observation room, ten people who'd won a lottery to attend the execution would be seated by now. Nearly a thousand survivors, other family members, and first responders waited in a convention center in Kansas City to watch over closed-circuit television. One camera only, focused on the face of the man who had changed their lives for all the wrong reasons. When the priest came in, Mai knew the time was close. The priest looked around and then came to her. Father, she said, you're Siobhan? Yes. He wanted me to tell you. He stopped, swallowed hard. He said you were going to see his father, and he wants you to tell his father he confessed and had last rites. He said you'd understand. I'm Catholic. He blessed her, 
moved a few paces away, and waited. When John Thomas Carroll entered the killing room, she saw the man she'd spotted at Killeen eight years ago, the man who had started her down a long, dark path. Under his own power, he lay on the gurney, still and calm as the guards strapped him down and covered him with a sheet to his neck. When the three needles went into his calf, she thought she saw a flicker of pain in his eyes, so fleeting she must have imagined it. He turned his head toward where she was, gave a nod, and looked at the camera over his face. Though Mai had been taught to kill with little emotion and had done so, her heart raced. This was a nightmare she'd never had, here in this clean, sterile place where a human being was about to be killed for killing human beings. The warden read the death warrant and said, um, Mr. Carroll asked me to read his final words, a poem by Ernest, no, William Ernest Hensley, entitled, the warden squinted at the paper he held, Invictus. Mai had dictated the poem to Carroll from memory and had wanted him to read it, but he said, no. If I do, he told her, everyone will see I'm not a monster after all, only a man about to die, and we can't have that. The warden cleared his throat and began. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Mai decided these same words, one day a long time from now, would be read over her grave. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. My murmured the words with the warden. Behind her, the priest whispered the Our Father. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The warden folded the paper and pocketed it. He nodded toward a blacked-out window next to the gurney. A hidden medical technician would administer the drugs. Carol's facade relaxed when the first drug invaded his bloodstream. Mai knew before anyone else when he died. She heard her first banshee. Some observers, not understanding the physiology of the drugs, thought his open eyes a final insult and injury. His last words, read by a stranger, weren't the ones a country had waited to hear. No one in the public would ever hear what John Thomas Carroll, soldier, had said to her, his cheek against her hand, his lips moving like soft wings against her skin. Those were not the words to haunt her remaining days, though, 
as she came awake every night in the midst of their echo. No, it was the simple question, asked not by a mere monster, but a complex man. Will I dream? The end. There we have it. If you do have any comments about the series, please go to my Facebook author page, www.facebook.com slash unspywriter, and either leave a comment or message me there, and I'll be happy to answer any of your questions. Just be civil. Thank you for listening to the podcast for the past month. This series is my version of a masterpiece, and I'm extremely proud of it. However, if something about it didn't sit right with you, or if it made you think differently about the issues involved, I'd love to hear from you. Next month, we'll be revisiting my first two novellas, The Yellow Scarf and My Noble Enemy. And I'll talk a bit about a new form of publishing I'm going to try called Bella. Until then, don't forget, wear your mask, wash your hands, and watch your distance. And always keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Tune in next week for a brand new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.